shortly, and it's been 2,000 years, and they still haven't happened. So he didn't know what he was talking about. Well, the word shortly is the Greek word takas, which can mean in a brief time, or it can mean quickly. In fact, it's the word we get our English word tachometer from. A tachometer measures RPMs, revolutions per minute of your engine, how fast your crankshaft is turning. It's turning, the the more you give it the gas, the quicker it turns. Okay, that's the idea. Uh, When John says that these things must shortly take place, he's he's not saying that they're going to happen shortly in a sense of chronology, but quickly or actually rapidly once they are set in motion. The idea is this. The things written in this book, once they start, are going to be so destructive, so cataclysmic, so horrific, well, they just can't be prolonged or dragged out. Because if they were, all life on the face of the earth would be wiped out. I mean, when these things start to happen, it's not going to take, you know, decades. And th- I mean, it's going to happen quickly. Because if it didn't happen quickly, the destructive force of these judgments and various things that man unleashes against himself are going to be so devastating, so cataclysmic, that if they were not shortened and interrupted by the return of Christ, all flesh would be wiped out in the face of the earth. And that's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 22. He said, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. I'll give you one example. In Revelation chapter 6, we're introduced to the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? And as they go forth onto the earth, within a very short period of time, they wipe out one quarter of the earth's entire population. That just starts the tribulation rolling. So in a very short space of time, A billion and a half people are wiped out. That is equal to the combined populations of South America, the United States, Canada, and all of Europe wiped out almost overnight. I mean, it's pretty devastating stuff we're talking about. And that's why it has to be quick. It cannot be dragged out. So again, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. John was an eyewitness of these things. We're not sure if God gave him a vision of the future, or if he actually transported him bodily into the future to see these things unfold as they were taking place. We don't know. We do know that John is telling us, look, I'm not just sharing you words that the Lord spoke to me. He actually let me see these things take place. So I'm an eyewitness of these things. And it's interesting, and not everybody agrees with this, but if you were a first century person, you know, and you lived, you know, with, hor- with uh, chariots and horses and animals. And you were transported 2,000 years into the future. And you were allowed to see uh, 21st century armaments, weaponry, and warfare. How would you describe it? Think about that for a minute. Well, how would you describe a tank or, a, or a, an Apache helicopter or, you know, any one of a number of weapons? 
I'm convinced John is struggling to to relate what he is seeing, and I think he's seeing 21st century warfare being related to uh, his audience when he's just a first century fisherman, basically. And so we'll ha- we'll look at some of this as we go, obviously, because it's loaded with this kind of imagery. But John says, I-, "I was an eyewitness. I saw these things that I'm writing to you about." Verse three: Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Notice that John said, or actually the Lord is really speaking through John, blessed is he, singular, in other words, a pastor or an elder, who reads, and the idea is out loud, and those who, plural, those, which would be a congregation, uh, those who are uh, hearing these words read aloud, a congregation or a group of Christians somewhere, and hear the words of this prophecy. The idea is this. This book was given, and, and you know, Paul wrote seven letters to seven different churches. He wrote to the Church of Rome, Corinth, Galatia, uh, uh, Ephesus, Philippi, Colossae, and Thessalonica. Seven letters to seven different churches. John wrote one letter to seven churches. And you know, it was delivered to the pastor or the elder who then was commanded to read it publicly to the congregation. So blessed is he who reads it, and those who hear it, and of course everyone who obeys it. That's the key. We can read the word and we can hear the word, but if we don't obey the word, it's not going to do us much good. Don't be just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Now you have to understand something. Here we are at the end of the first century, and the church is embroiled in tremendous persecution and trials. You've got a, a leader on the throne in, in Rome who is not a madman. Nero was a madman. He was goofy. I mean, this guy was nuts. I mean, he would dip Christians in pitch, time to poles, douse them with pitch, and then light them on fire in his garden while he rode naked through his garden on his chariot. I mean, he was a little bit of a nutcase, all right? He was a madman. But Domitian was not a madman. He was very calculating. I don't know what's worse, to be ruled by a madman or somebody who is a brilliant psychopath, egomaniac. I I don't know. But the church was undergoing incredible persecution at this time. And so Jesus took it upon himself to write to the church these, this book to encourage them, to encourage them. You know, so much of the New Testament talks about persecutions. Paul said uh, to the churches that he ministered, ministered to in Galatia, who at that time were going through some difficult times, he reminded them it's through many tribulations that we enter the kingdom of heaven. He who desires to live godly, in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, the Bible says. I mean, we have been so blessed in this country because we have grown up with religious freedom. We have grown up in a nation that was founded on Christian principles. In fact, the Bible was the first book in our schools. Our founding fathers came over here from England because they wanted to worship God according to the dictates of their own conscience freely, and they were God-fearing people. And so this country was founded on the scriptures and on freedom of religion and free speech, things we take for granted today. And yet, in John's day, 
It wasn't the case. And Christians went through incredible suffering and persecution for their faith just because they wouldn't call Caesar Lord. They were brutally tortured and killed. And so the Lord Jesus gives a revelation to John to share with the churches. And in part, it was designed to encourage their hearts, to help them to understand that these things are not some strange, fiery trials that it's just part of what it means to be a Christian. And hang in there because, you know, they can take your life, but they can't take your soul. I mean, they can persecute and kill your body, but they can't kill your soul forever. And Jesus said, don't be afraid of those who can just kill the body, but can do no more after that. Fear God. Who can both kill the body and cast the soul into hell forever? But he was writing to encourage these people that even though things were dark and even getting darker, they were to be lights. They were to be lights. Just like he would say to the church today and is saying to us through this book. Now, unfortunately, five out of the seven churches that Jesus dictated letters to in chapters 2 and 3, unfortunately, Their light was dimming. And so Jesus spoke words of correction to kind of get them back where they should be. But the idea was to kind of just to to, to encourage them and to just tell them, look, it is a dark world, but be a light. Be a light. Don't compromise. Don't give in to the darkness. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose it. You know what I'm saying? I mean, as Paul said, you know, you're, you're living in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, but you're, you're to shine forth as lights in this world, he said. And John concluded this short intro in verse 3, I believe, uh, with the words, the time is near. The word for time there is the Greek word kairos, and it refers to a period of time. What John has in mind is the time of the end. Now, we just got done saying that John didn't uh, mean, when he used the word uh, taku or takas, he, he, he was talking about when these events finally begin to happen, they're going to happen quickly until Christ returns. I mean, it's going to be boom, 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 rapid fire succession, which will bring the return of Christ to the planet Earth. That didn't mean, though, that John didn't think that the whole end time scenario wasn't near. Because all of the apostles and all the early church were living their lives in such a way that they expected Jesus to come back at any time. In fact, in Revelation 22, verse 10, I don't know if it was the Lord or an angel that said to John, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. How close? How near? Well, the apostles didn't really know. They did, and I think that that's the way the Lord wanted, wanted it to be. They didn't know exactly when he was coming back for his church. But they knew he could come, back, could come back at any time. And that knowledge kept them living in such a way every day, looking for the return of Christ and living holy lives. Because if you believe that Jesus could come back at any moment uh, in the rapture of the church to take us out of here, how is that going to impact the way you live your life on this earth? Well, John said in his first epistle, chapter 3, verse 3, everyone who has this hope, the hope that Christ could come at any moment for his church, purifies himself even as Jesus himself is pure. It has a way of purifying the church. Jesus said it's it's an evil or a wicked servant that says my master delays his coming. And when Jesus gave parables where he said that a servant that says his master delays his coming 
It always leads to drunkenness, lawfulness, wickedness, carnality. Look, you show me a church that is not teaching and talking about and looking forward to the return of Christ in the rapture or the second coming. And I'll show you a church that at very least is asleep in the light, but probably is a church that's involved in immorality and wickedness because it's the knowledge that Jesus Christ could come back at any time for his church that keeps us from being entangled with the cares of this life. Who, who, want, who wants Jesus to come for us? And we're all entangled in this life, and we're building a kingdom for ourselves on the earth. And we're, you know, living carnal lives. And by the way, the Bible says that when he does appear, many Christians are going to be ashamed at his appearing. Not that they're going to lose their salvation, but they're just going to be ashamed because they didn't really go for it down here. They weren't really living totally committed lives for Jesus. You know, as Paul says, look, you know, we're in a race. Who, who signs up to run in a race who says, I hope I, I, you know, I'm last. I'm shooting for last this time. I mean, we all want to win, right? The idea is that Paul says, look, you, you run in a real race, you want to, you want to win. So, so, you know, that should be the motivation here too. Run this Christian race as if you want, you're going to win it. Go all out. And yet many are not going all out. Many are asleep in the light. Many are just kind of enjoying the cares of this life. In Mark chapter 13, why don't you turn there? I'll just read you some of the words Jesus said on this subject. But Mark 13, verse 32, Jesus said, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. You know, whenever the Lord wanted to stress something, he would say in your King James, verily, or in your New King James, truly. If he really wanted to stress something, he would say, verily, verily, or truly, truly, or most assuredly, I say to you. Here in this passage, he commands us to watch three times and then a fourth time by inference. Four times in these five verses or so. He commands us to watch, to be watching, not to be sleeping. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that you can be a real Christian and still be asleep in the light. But Paul admonishes us and says, look, you're not children of the night nor children of darkness. You're children of light and children of the day. Walk, therefore, as children of the day. It's time to wake up out of sleep. It's time to be watchful. Our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. I think we can all say amen to that, right? I mean, he's getting it, he's coming soon. I mean, we've been talking about his coming. I've been a Christian almost 30 years. I've been talking about it ever since I got saved. I cut my spiritual teeth on Bible prophecy. And we've been talking about Jesus' return for a long time. 
And now, when it looks like he's nearer than we could ever have imagined, a lot of Christians are sleeping in the light. And it's like we need to wake each other up. I think Revelation is a wake-up call. As we study this book, I'm hoping that we it wakes us up. The Lord's coming is very near, even at the door. And so we need to be ready. I don't want him to come and find me sleeping. You know? I mean, I want to run right into his arms. I mean, I want to just go for it, man. Now, some would say, but yeah, but it's been 2,000 years. I mean, come on. John says the time is near. Well, it's been 2,000 years. Well, what does Peter say? With the Lord, a day is what? Like 1,000 years. And 1,000 years like one day. So it's only been a couple days in God's, you know, (laughs) calendar. So he is coming. In fact, one of the characteristics of the last days, the time just prior to his coming, as we studied in our men's group on Thursday morning, Second Peter, that scoffers would come saying, oh, when is he coming? Where's the promise of his coming? You Christians have been talking about that for 2,000 years. Come on, he's not coming. You're talking about judgment and this new world kingdom. Just, come on, you're kidding yourselves. Well, I always tell them, you know what, you just fulfilled Bible prophecy. Because my Bible says people like you would come just prior to Jesus' return. Thank you. You really encouraged me. I was feeling a little down today. You really get me going. Thank you. Verse 4. So Jesus gave it to John to give to the seven churches which are in Asia. Asia Minor. Modern day Turkey. Okay. In fact... You ever notice that number seven is very prominent throughout the scriptures? But especially in the book of Revelation, it's used 54 times in this book alone. If I was to ask you what the number seven represents, some of you might be prone to say, because I've heard this from Christians, well, it's, uh, it represents holiness. No, it doesn't. It's the number of completeness. It's used of complete good. I mean, Jesus Christ is the menorah, the seven-branched, golden, oil-burning lamp. He is completely good and holy. However, in chapter 12, we read about the dragon who has seven heads and seven crowns on those heads. He is completely evil and wicked. So it's not a number that is always used of God or good things. It just signifies completeness, complete holiness, goodness, complete wickedness uh, or evil. So, so just keep that in mind. But Jesus wrote to seven churches. So right off the bat, the number seven tells us he's trying to communicate something that's complete to us. But why these churches? I mean, there were other churches that were bigger and more important than these churches. The church at Rome or Antioch or Jerusalem. Why these seven small churches, except for one, Laodicea was pretty good size, but for the most part, seven small struggling churches in Asia Minor, why these seven? Well, we're going to see something very interesting when we get to chapters 2 and 3. These were real churches, real churches with real people. They had real problems, and they had some real good things going on too. And Jesus wrote seven letters to these churches, uh, encouraging them, commending them, also correcting, and in some cases condemning them for certain practices. But it's interesting that, and we'll study this as we get there, we see in these seven churches the various periods of church history kind of embodied in these churches. 
starting from the apostolic period to the present. Not only that, we also see that in many ways the the issues that these seven churches dealt with kind of relate to most of the things that we experience in our own Christian lives. How that our love for the Lord can cool off like in Ephesus, although we're still going to church and keeping up the, the motion, but we've lost the emotion, right? And just as we look at these seven churches, there's so much in them that relate to us individually. So there's something complete about these. Jesus singled out these seven because in an allegorical way they represented all the periods of church history from the apostolic period to the present day. In fact, the first three are past tense in a sense. Uh, You're not going to make it, but there's a crown waiting for you. The last four are hold fast till I come. So the last four are around today. Interesting. But he goes on to say to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. As my beloved pastor Chuck has always said, these are the Siamese twins of the New Testament. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day.